Prologue. I'm always amazed at how writing, telling, and hearing one's own story each gets different parts of the brain working. It never occurred to me until I listened to my account of the apartment fire just how easily my mother was able to buy a home. Several months earlier, her story was that she couldn't afford better than that apartment. But when pressed to move out of the labor's home, having overstayed her welcome, she was able to successfully make an offer on a home within a week and in a neighborhood suited to the needs of her child. Her financial situation hadn't changed since the divorce seven months earlier. Interest rates on 30-year mortgages had fallen about a percent and were still in the teens. She hadn't come into any additional money. And once again, I'm left with the optics of it all. I wonder what she got out of putting us into such a bizarre situation when she had the means to do something so much better. It also wasn't lost on me, as I listened to my story, that my mother didn't bother to call me at school the day of the fire. She didn't work in the emergency room or in an operating room. She was a floor nurse. If she'd wanted to, she could have easily taken the time to call me at school, tell me what had happened, let me know that she was okay, and explain that Mrs. Labor would be picking me up and where she'd be taking me. She chose not to do any of these things, and instead, let me be traumatized by the event. And again, I find myself wondering, what did she get out of that? Skyborn, Episode 9, Kiss Today Goodbye, by K.G. Lockrams. It's late winter of my junior year of high school, and my mother and I have moved into our new home in the development adjacent to our old one. Many of my friends lived in this development, and were either in my grade or attended my high school. I was glad to be living in familiar territory again. When the neighborhood was being built, my friends and I would run roughshod over the place. We'd run through the stick frame houses and play with the bulldozers and other equipment. It was odd to be living in one of the houses I had once explored when it was just a shell. All the houses in the development were split levels. When entering through the front door, there was a small landing with one short staircase leading up to the living room and one leading down to the basement. Behind the living room was a large eating kitchen, a full story above ground level. Off the kitchen was a short hallway that accessed a full bath on the backside of the house, a linen closet, and two bedrooms. My mother took the front bedroom, and I took the back. She and my sister decorated the one finished bedroom in the basement, under the living room, so she had a place to stay when home from college. My brother spent most of his time with our father when he wasn't at school. He desperately sought our father's love which he was incapable of giving, and his approval, which he always withheld. Our mother purchased a pull-out sofa for him to use when he wanted to stay with us. The dynamic between my mother and I continually evolved as she uncoiled and settled into the new house and her life as a divorcee. She leaned on me as her emotional caregiver, which came out sideways given she was fundamentally non-demonstrative. Ours was the epitome of an approach-avoid relationship. She'd say or do something seeking comfort or assurance. I'd offer it. She'd reject it. Rinse and repeat. We got another kitten. This would be my third childhood cat. I don't remember what became of her. She had a sweet disposition, but a fondness for climbing the custom curtains my mother had installed on the front picture window in the living room. In fact, I don't remember cats one and three dying by misadventure or old age. They were just gone one day. Given the incidents with my mother, the dogs we had as children, and the family station wagon, I have a strong suspicion as to the fate of the cats, but no clear memory. To be fair to the youngest labor, maybe she was the one who let the kitten out of the cabana house that winter after the apartment fire. 
One of the first things she did when we were in the new house was buy herself her first brand new car. The closest my mother had ever come to a new car was when my father bought that blue Chevy Chevette without discussing it with her. He justified the purchase by telling her he had done so because it matched her eyes. But then he never let her drive it. Buying herself a car was a big deal for her. Rather than passing the car she had down to my sister or I, she chose to trade it in. After Bobby gave Diane his naked picture, and I moved out of the neighborhood, and the store where we worked burned down, our friendship began to fade. I had heard at one point that his family was going through some major upheaval, but he never talked about it. Even though I was again within walking distance of his house, we no longer spent time together outside of school. We were cast as leads in the spring musical, which ended up being the last thing we ever did together. He joined a fundamentalist church, and I watched the kind, funny, open kid I'd known for years change into someone else. As my relationship with Bobby faded, Diane and I became very close friends. It became generally understood, but never discussed, that she and her girlfriend Parker were just that, girlfriends. I made another new friend that year, Dan. We were in the same grade in multiple classes together our junior year. He was kind, funny, stick-thin, had the cheesiest mustache a teenager could have, his own car, and thought I was hysterical. He was great for my ego. I was still doing everything in my power not to be seen as gay, or even potentially gay, short of dating a girl. I didn't want anyone else to be collateral damage to my confusion. Around this time, I developed the feeling of always being watched. No matter what I was doing or where I was, I felt observed by some invisible third presence. Even when driving alone in the car, I felt as if some force was looking at me. I was always on in front of others, trying to be someone I wasn't. I'd gotten the message at home that I wasn't the person my parents wanted. And when I sought help about my sexual identity, I got the message that wasn't someone I should be either. I was investing so much energy in being someone that didn't exist. As a survival mechanism, I learned to insult myself in order to reduce the chances of someone else doing it first. I learned to joke about a topic rather than open up about it. I became a master of deflection. Not surprising for someone who relied on dissociation as a coping mechanism. I think the sensation of being watched was due to my constant anxiety over being found out. I was failing geometry, The teacher had quite visibly disliked my older brother when he had taken her class years earlier. Lockrooms. Are you going to take after your brother or your sister? She asked the first time she took attendance. I think her disdain for him spilled over to me. When it was clear I was struggling with the subject, knowing I wouldn't be able to answer a question, she would call on me anyway. And when I gave partial or incorrect answers, she'd shame me. Wrong! Does anyone actually know the answer to this simple question, she'd say. It was a daily ritual. I would fake illness as often as I could to dodge her class, which ended at exactly 10.07 every morning. That time is etched into my brain. I found out I wouldn't advance to my senior year if I didn't pass her class, so I got a tutor. Geometry is about applying the right process to a given problem. It became, for me, about memorization, application, turning the crank, and trusting I'd get the right answer as a result. The tutor noticed I would often invert numbers and variables in my work and then carry the wrong thing forward, which would cause me to reach the wrong conclusion. The first week I studied with her, I would do the problem, check that I had it right, and then rewrite it. 
It helped me to slow down and focus. That Friday, I turned the week's assignments in, confident I'd gotten them all right. In the end, this was how I learned to have faith in a process, even when I didn't have faith in myself. The following Monday, as the teacher was handing them back, she stood in front of my desk and held up my paper to show the class. In bright red ink, she'd written a giant F on it and said, Cheating will not be tolerated. See me after class. After class, I went to her desk. This clearly isn't even your handwriting. Who did this for you? She demanded. I did. Don't belittle my intelligence, she said. I'm not. I'm seeing a tutor, I'm doing the work, then rewriting it once I have it right. She didn't believe a word I said. I had to have my tutor intervene before she changed my grade. She never apologized for shaming me in front of the class. She never encouraged me for seeking out a tutor. All she said was, Well, what did you expect? You went from D's to a perfect paper? How could I have been expected to believe that was your work? I was fortunate to have very good teachers throughout my public education, but she was the worst. I managed to get my grade up to a C, passed her course, and never had to interact with her again. But I had nightmares about her in that class well into my 30s. I'd wake up with the absolute belief I had flunked out of high school until the dream would clear. Such is the power of shame. I took a friend to prom that year. Kelly and I had been part of the same lunch clique since we were freshmen. I ate with kids who constantly made the honor roll, while I floundered about with poor grades. I had the raw intelligence to keep up with them in casual conversation, but my focus was always pulled towards survival over schoolwork. As prom approached and everyone was talking about their plans and desires to attend, Kelly expressed interest in going, but said no one had asked her. And because it meant so much to her, and because we were friends, I asked if she'd like to go, and we did. There wasn't any romantic interest from either side. We were simply able to help each other out. She got to go to prom, and I got another layer of deflection as I continued to question my sexual identity. During one of the last band practices that spring, I had lost count on a long break in a John Philip Sousa march and came in a measure early. Anyone who has ever played French horn will understand how that can happen. I swear Sousa hated the French horn. The band director, true to form, threw an absolute tantrum and his baton at my head. I heard it whiz by my ear, an inch to the left, and it would have hit me in the eye. When the time came to sign up for marching band camp, I didn't. I'd had my fill of toxically entitled men who abused children as a show of force to feel better about their own inadequacies. I'd also had enough of men throwing things at my head. I officially withdrew from band and choir. I had left my horn in the instrument room over the summer. I brought it home on the bus the first week of school, put it in the basement, and never played it again. Playing it amassed more negative than positive memories over the years, and I'd taken my abilities as far as I could and just wanted to move on. My mother, sister, and I loaded up the new car and drove to her grandmother's house that June. Without the disruptive nature of our father and brother, we were at ease with one another and had the opportunity to get to know each other in a relaxed environment. That 36-hour round trip was the most concentrated time I'd ever spend with my sister and mother. My grandmother continued to be the most stable influence in my life. My grandfather had been dead for three years now, and she had gotten settled into her life as a widow. Not a thing had changed in the house. Everything was exactly where it had been when he was still alive. It was like a museum of their life together. 
One day, she asked me to help her go through my grandfather's art studio. And while he was alive, we were forbidden to enter it. So I savored the opportunity to occupy his space. Surrounded by the things core to his life, it was easy to imagine he was still alive. I would catch myself looking for him in crowds. I wish I'd been given the opportunity to see him before he'd been cremated. It would have made it easier for me to accept his death. My grandfather was a prolific artist and worked across many mediums. He carved statuary, he carved wood blocks for printing, he used oils, acrylics, watercolors, pencil and pen and ink drawings. Born in 1899, the earliest work I saw of his was from 1914, and he didn't stop until his death another 68 years later. He had hundreds of pieces in his home, between his studio and the walls of the house. I was the only one of his grandchildren interested in his art, and my grandmother knew it. I wasn't the tallest of their children, but I was certainly the burliest. I want to show you something, she said, and slid a large folded case out from between two cabinets. You're my young Paul Bunyan, and I want you to have this, she said. It was a series of black and white pen and inks of different scenes in Paul Bunyan's adventures, ending with a full-color piece of Paul with his axe and Babe, the blue ox. I love the comic book style of the pieces. There, she said, and pointed to a large wooden art case. Put them in there for safekeeping, and fill the rest of the case with anything else you may like. Anything? I asked. Yes, take your pick. Your mom and Anne have already talked about what they want. Go through his trunks and anything else in the studio. When you're finished, I want you to show me what you chose, and tell me why. I picked out dozens of pieces and filled the case with the art that spanned his lifetime. It was an honor. I spent the better part of the day exploring his studio and explaining my choices to her. She had a sad smile and tears in her eyes as I shared with her why I picked each piece. Good, she said. This is good. The majority of that visit was spent going through all of the things that had been accumulated in the house throughout my grandparents, mothers, and aunts' lives. There were many laughs and lots of tears as my mother and aunt sorted through unexpected childhood toys that had been tucked away in the attic behind the bookcase in my grandparents' bedroom. I didn't know it at the time but it would be the last time I'd ever seen my grandparents' house. Without the commitment of band and choir, I got about 20 hours of my life back and decided to get a part-time job at the local Kmart. It was physically the biggest place I'd ever worked and had the most employees. I worked with people of all ages, from all walks of life. I learned about most every aspect of retail, from checking in freight and doing inventory, pricing and stocking shelves, running a register, working the layaway, mixing paint, and working in the garden center, where I first started. I'd load people's cars, water plants, and helped customers figure out which ortho products to buy to solve their various gardening problems. Ortho used to publish a giant book each year that helped people identify the issues they were having with a plant and which ortho product they should buy to solve it. Whenever I had downtime, I would read through it. By the end of the season, I'd established myself as the person to ask for help in the garden center. If I wasn't working that day, people would ask when I would be back and leave. I'd build a reputation for being informed, and they wanted and trusted my opinion. When the manager told me this one day, I beamed with pride, which was a feeling I was unaccustomed to. Eventually, I was trusted with the coveted blue light special announcement. It's ridiculous how much I loved doing that. It was a literal blue light mounted on a pole, mounted to a cabinet on wheels, which housed a car battery to operate the light. I'd wheel it over to the area in question, get on the store speaker system and say, 
Attention Kmart shoppers. For the next 15 minutes and 15 minutes only, we'll be taking an additional 20% off bounty paper towels located in the Midway. Be sure to have your merchandise reticketed before leaving the area. And as always, thank you for shopping your local Kmart. Depending on the sale, people would literally run to the area of the store and scramble for the sale merchandise. The social interaction of it all was also an education. Seeing people get carted away by the police for shoplifting, seeing drunk men try to buy a shotgun 20 minutes before the store closed, and fail when the weed dealer slash sporting goods manager would refuse them, seeing several of the single women who worked there use the store and its dining room as their meeting place for affairs they were having with married men, learning the importance of never asking a woman, so when are you due, before knowing for sure she's pregnant. That summer, I also decided it was time for me to take off the weight I'd been putting on since middle school. My stress level and anxiety were much lower with my father out of the picture, and I was able to modify my coping mechanisms and make healthier choices. Patty was an original member of our mother's bridge club and lived a dozen or so houses from us in our old neighborhood. She was a good friend of our mother's and ran a local chapter of a group called Diet Workshop. She had three children, each around the same ages as me and my siblings, and she'd always kept an eye on my sister and me. She never said anything directly to either of us about the nature of our parents' relationship, but I imagine she knew exactly what was going on. Patty worked for a temp agency and helped my sister get one of her first professional jobs. On days when her mother wouldn't or couldn't take her to said job, Patty would drive her. There was at least one occasion where my sister had come home from college for the weekend, only to have some falling out with our mother that ended in her saying, Find your own way back to school this weekend and Patty drove my sister back to college. Our mother didn't arrange any of this on my sister's behalf. Patty just always paid attention and discreetly intervened. When I announced I'd be starting the diet, my mother and sister also decided to join. It was another first, the three of us doing something together as a team. Each week, for the remainder of the summer, we'd plan meals, attend weigh-ins, and support each other's progress. My mother and sister would exercise together in the living room to Jane Fonda or some other exercise video, and my mother and I started taking walks together. I also began riding my 10-speed 20 miles a day, off into the bridge where Larry had killed himself. I dropped about 5 pounds every week, and by the end of the summer, I'd taken off 50 pounds and was height-weight proportionate for the first time since 6th grade. I was excited to go back to school for the first time in my life. I had my own money again. I'd lost a ton of weight. Hair care products for men were now a thing, and I was able to tame my white afro. Thank you, L'Oreal Studio Hair Care for Men. I also found a decent hairstyle and bought myself better clothes. And when school started, not one person noticed a single change about me. Huh, I thought. I took my SATs that fall. The night before the test, a friend from work who ran the cafe stopped me. I heard you have your SATs tomorrow. Can I take you out to dinner to get your mind off things? She asked. I was planning on doing a quick review and just going to bed, I said. Come on, they say it doesn't do any good to study the night before a test. You either know it or you don't by now. Okay, sure. We didn't get out of the store until 9.30, and the only place that was open was the truck stop where David had died the year before. We were driving along the same highway, and it was foggy. I was clutching the door handle. She looked over at me and asked, Why are you so quiet? And in just those few seconds, out of the fog, appeared the back end of a tractor-trailer with its lights off. Phoebe! I shouted, looking straight ahead. 
She slammed on the brakes. My torso flew forward and my head hit the dashboard. She ran off the road and onto the shoulder, but avoided the truck. Are you okay? She asked. Yeah, I think so. But if you don't mind, I think I'd like you to just take me home. Absolutely. I'm so sorry, she said. It's not your fault. The guy didn't even have his lights on. And she took me home. I took the test the next day, and I don't know if it was the accident or just a lack of preparation, but I didn't do well. As my friends were applying to college, I didn't. My grades were not that great, neither were my SATs. I knew I wasn't going to get any financial help from my parents, and with my grades and SAT scores, I wasn't going to get any scholarships either. As my friends started receiving acceptance letters, they asked me what I was going to do. Are you not going to go to college? Kelly asked one day at lunch. I'm going to go to community college, get my grades up, and see what happens. She looked horrified by the idea of me going to community college. We all used to call it redneck tech. The one event that stands out most my senior year at school was the launch of the Space Shuttle Challenger on January 28, 1986. The crew had the first school teacher ever selected to travel into space, Krista McAuliffe. Challenger was the 25th scheduled space shuttle launch. They'd become routine, but because Challenger had a school teacher, schools everywhere followed its progress. That January morning, the entire school huddled around every available television to watch the launch, and barely a minute into the flight, it exploded in a ball of fire and smoke. I was watching in the library with the AV club. Just as it exploded, I could hear people scream throughout the building. Eventually, the principal made an announcement over the loudspeaker, clearly choking back tears. For the rest of the day, classes turned into grief counseling, and everyone processed what they'd seen. It was such a shock. We had no precedent at this age. We watched a disaster unfold before us, live on television, and knew in the moment, as it happened, that there was no chance of anyone having survived. Dan and I became very close to our algebra teacher, in such a way that would be frowned upon or forbidden by today's standards. She was relatively new to the school, in her late 20s, single, and completely unconventional. With our parents' awareness and consent, she took us to our first rock concert. Then she took us on our first trip to New York City. And without our parents' awareness and consent, she got us both stoned for the first time. Was it completely inappropriate? Absolutely. But her friendship brought me so many eye-opening experiences that I wouldn't have traded it for anything in the world. Dan and I became inseparable that year, and would hang out in his finished basement on Friday or Saturday nights. His parents would buy us wine coolers as a trade-off for knowing where we were. They figured if they didn't, we'd end up going to a party somewhere, and end up drinking and driving. It kept us out of trouble, and at that age, we would have certainly gotten into trouble. Dan's mother had gone back to school to get her master's in psychology. She needed to practice her intake, interview, and assessment skills, and asked me one day if I'd be willing to be a test subject for her. She was always kind to me, so I said, sure. She walked me through her standard questions, and at the end, put her pencil down and looked at me. Well, Kit, I think you're very angry. (laughs) I laughed, thinking she was kidding. She remained stone-faced and held my gaze. I rarely have ever let myself get angry. It was a core value of mine as I lived in fear of ending up like my brother or father, who could never contain their rage. But as soon as I realized she wasn't kidding, I did feel angry. White-hot anger. 
I pushed it down and felt my right cheek clench under my eye. What do you mean? I'm not angry. Well, it seems to me you went through a lot with your family, she said. And then I was not only angry, but also felt exposed. We hadn't discussed my family at all, and I felt it was unfair of her to draw on secondhand information from Dan to form this opinion. She went on. Your parents' divorce, the fire in the apartment you'd been living in, the fire at your job. From what I know of you, and this interview, I think it's something you may want to explore. And then she wrapped up. Explore? How? With who? And who the hell was she to tell me I'm angry? It was unnerving. It left me feeling raw. Was I angry? I genuinely didn't know. And then I felt nothing again. Just flat and my normal self. Except for that clenching under my right eye. And along came senior prom. And again I found myself going with a friend because she wanted to go and didn't have anyone to go with. It was held at a local army base. We kept passing signs that read restricted, do not enter, and then nothing but dark country roads. I was completely lost. Lyle had become an MP in the army and had once told me how well the MPs patrol access points to a base. Figuring it would be the easiest way to get directions, I turned down one of the restricted roads. I stopped the car, turned off the engine, and stepped out onto the roadway in my tuxedo and leaned against the car. In less than a minute, a jeep with two MPs pulled up and hit me with a spotlight. You're trespassing on government property, they called. We need help. We're lost, I called back. One of the MPs approached the car, and after berating my choice to trespass, gave me directions for how to get to the prom. That was a stupid thing to do, my date said. I know, but it worked. There was an awkward moment at the prom where she thought I'd made a pass at her. I don't know what that was, but there'll be none of that, she said, indignant. I almost laughed at the absurdity, if she only knew what I was wrestling with. I simply said, that wasn't what you thought it was. I have no interest in you either. Dance? And we danced, went to the after party, and I took her home. As the weather warmed, Dan and I used to wander around the ditch near my house on weekend nights, drinking. Occasionally another friend of ours would tag along. He lived in another adjacent development within walking distance of mine. The three of us were out until well past my mother's usual bedtime. We planned on crashing at my house and my sister's room in the basement. When I got to the house, the living room light was on and the front door was locked. Shit, I said. What? The door is locked. I don't have my keys. I think my mother's awake. Suddenly, she threw the door open. I was standing in the middle with Dan to my left and our friend slightly behind us and to my right. Hello, Mom, I slurred. Are you drunk? She was more incredulous than angry. It was the first time she'd ever seen me drunk. Our friend dropped his wine cooler and it shattered on the walkway. Yup, I said proudly. Despite her best effort to stay angry, she started laughing, caught herself, and tried to swing back to righteous indignation. Well, you're not staying here. You can sleep somewhere else tonight. And she slammed and locked the door. Our friend fell backward onto the front lawn and began laughing uncontrollably. Jan and I picked him up from the lawn, propped him between us, and shuffled over to his house and spent the night. One Friday night, a couple of weeks later, Jan and I repeated the routine solo. We were drinking California coolers and walking along one of the well-worn paths of the ditch. I love you, Dan. I love you too, Kit. No, I mean, I'm in love with you. 
He processed this in silence as we walked along the path. Wait, what? How can you be in love with me? You've gone out with more girls than I have. I think I may be gay. Gay for me or gay gay? I don't know, I said. We walked in silence for a bit, passing the last wine cooler back and forth between us. I just want to be with someone I love who loves me too, I said. I do love you, he said. But I'm not gay. We've swapped this wine cooler back and forth so much, I said. We're practically making out right now. He laughed so hard he stopped walking, took a drink, then passed it back. We started walking again. I don't know if I'm gay. I just know I want to be with you. How? What? You are with me. What does that mean? I really didn't have an answer, and we walked a bit more in silence. Let me blow you, I said. What? Let me blow you. We passed the wine cooler back and forth between us. Come on, I said, let me do it. I love you. I know you've never had a blowjob. Come on, stop asking me that. Why? I asked. He stopped walking, and we faced each other. Because if you keep asking me, I may say yes. The moment held. So say yes. He slowly started walking again. It would change everything in our relationship. And I don't want that to happen. I do love you, but it would make things weird. And I'd rather have my best friend than a blowjob. I took the wine cooler from him and finished it. Okay then, I said. And we changed the topic and started back toward my house. And I have to say, his was the kindest rebuke I'd ever gotten. My brother finally graduated in May of my senior year. He'd failed so many classes, it was his fifth year of a four-year program. My mom, sister, and I carpooled to his graduation ceremony. I knew our father would be there, but had hoped we wouldn't have to see him. We made it through the formal commencement ceremony without a sighting, and were waiting outside the stadium for my brother. Just as he came out to the parking lot, our father, with his new wife, Michelle, appeared from the crowd. My sister and I, having no interest in him whatsoever, fell back from the group as our mother stood by our brother. Our father walked out to him, congratulated him, and ignored the rest of us. And I felt nothing. I couldn't have articulated why. I thought I'd feel angry or hurt or hopeful, but I felt nothing. And then he was gone. And that was the last time I ever saw my father. The next month, I graduated from high school. My mother and sister attended, but not my brother, which was fine by me. Late that summer, my mother and I went to the grocery store, and she had me drive. She never felt comfortable having me drive her car. I think she did it to gain confidence in my ability, so she didn't feel she had to shuttle me everywhere. It was a clear summer day, and the sun was low in the afternoon sky. We were waiting for the light to change to cross north over the biggest highway that ran through town. The light changed green. I pulled into the intersection, and wham! A man in his 80s, whose name I still remember, hit the front passenger side of the hood. We were spun around 180 degrees. We got out. He was dazed, but all right. The front end of my mother's first new car had been crushed. Fluids were leaking everywhere. There was no screaming or condemnation. 
There were some tears and a few, why can't I ever have nice things, comments, but they were not specifically directed at me. The police came. Everyone was fine. The car was towed away, leaking and broken. The other driver was faulted and given a citation. We got a ride back to the house, and the next day my mother got a rental car as we waited to learn the fate of hers. Still, no yelling or screaming. If my father had been in the picture, I would have been berated and told on the loop how stupid and reckless I was. But from my mother, nothing. And she didn't have the best track record for calm and collected either. Finally, I couldn't take it anymore and came out of my room and found her in the living room watching television. I was shaking from my anxiety and guilt. I need you to punish me, I said. What? Why? she asked, genuinely confused. Because it's my fault your new car got wrecked, I said and started to choke back tears. Kit, it's not your fault, she said. Seriously, I can't take it. Yell at me. I can't take this silence, I pleaded. The guy was as old as dirt itself. He was driving into the sun. He ran a light. Everyone is fine. It's not your fault. I stood there, stunned and speechless. I didn't know what to do or how to act. I didn't know how to process this moment of truth, where realities that would not have aligned had my father been in the picture were actually aligning. She offered me no comfort, but the simple fact that the details of what happened aligned with what was being reported and reflected back to me was foreign, and I had difficulty trusting it. I didn't know how to process this change in dynamics, and it completely unnerved me. I hold this moment against all its predecessors. If my world had been normal, this exchange would have been nothing. A parent acknowledging the truth of an incident and not making their child carry any unnecessary guilt or shame over it. But precedents in my life, many of which I've shared in past episodes, failed this simple parental standard. I just wasn't equipped for this level of normalcy. I'd become so braced for the gaslighting, braced for the yelling, braced for the worst possible outcome of any situation for so long in order to withstand it, that this moment of sanity felt utterly insane. And such is one of the many legacies of long-term trauma. Abnormal becomes so normal that when presented with an agnostic moment of normalcy, it feels foreign and unsafe. In the end, the car was able to be repaired, but that event and my reaction made me wonder if maybe I was broken.